All right. Well, if you will turn to Ecclesiastes 7, we're going to continue on through Ecclesiastes. We'll be in verses 20 through 29 today. We've been going through Ecclesiastes for a little while now, and one of the things that Ecclesiastes does so well and does over and over again is observe that this life is full of trouble. It's toilsome, is weary, is an unhappy business, as it says in chapter 1, and it seems vain and meaningless. And these kinds of observations are things that everyone can relate to, right? This is, this is why so many people love the book of Ecclesiastes, whether they're Christian or not. There's, these types of observations um, strike us as very honest and real. You're not going to really get much pushback if you say things like, life is hard. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, in the words of you too. Satisfaction seems elusive. Like these are things that everyone pretty much agrees with. And so all of this is immensely helpful um, in showing the relevance and the truth and the honesty of Ecclesiastes, but as the Bible of the Bible as a whole, right? Especially to those who are not sure about it. This is true to our experience of life. But these observations are not the last word that the Bible has on explaining the problems and difficulties of life. The Bible goes deeper and gives us an explanation for why life is like this. And that deeper explanation is sin. And sin is a bit harder to swallow, is not so popular of a universally accepted topic. You often will get pushback when you try to explain that the underlying problem behind all of the frustration and toil and weariness and dissatisfaction is human sin. And it's not just the sin of others out there. That would be easy enough. But it's also our own sin and our own hearts. We are part of the problem. We would much prefer to not get to this level. We would much prefer to just say, it's the world out there, it's others, it's not myself. But the thing is, we won't get very far in actually dealing with the problem of sin and with the problems of the world and the frustrations and difficulties and toil we face if we don't recognize and deal with the problem of sin. So after seven or eight weeks of really just sitting in the frustration and toil and vanity out of vanities that we've experienced in, in Ecclesiastes, today's passage um, confronts us with this deeper explanation of sin, the root problem of our world. We're going to read through, um, I'm going to read just the 10 verses here up front, and then we'll draw from them as we unpack this idea of sin. Okay, so 10 verses, 20 through 29, through the end of chapter 7. Let me read that now, and then we'll walk, work through them. Verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. 
I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. That can be a kind of difficult verse. We'll, we'll get into that briefly. <laughs> uh, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So the author of Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher, as he calls himself, he's on this quest, this search, this journey to figure out life, to find, as one commentator puts it, the, the key to life. What explains this life that we have? What, where can satisfaction or any satisfying answer be found? And he goes through, as we've seen, all of these different things, pleasures, wisdom, riches. Where is satisfaction? What are we doing here? And so a couple times here, he says he's looking for the scheme of things. This is getting at that same thing. It, 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 it is a word that means something like explanation, reason, conclusion. He's trying to find the answer, the conclusion, the explanation for life. And here in this passage, he, we get somewhat of a conclusion. It's not the final conclusion. Remember, Ecclesiastes is one of those books you have to read all the way to the end, and then you get the, the conclusion. But he does reach a conclusion here that is a significant one. So verse 23, he says, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, very deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So he's at a loss. At, at this point in the book, after all the author has, has searched out and tried to understand by living and by wisdom, he hasn't been able to figure out the meaning of life. He's at a loss. He couldn't wrap it up in a way that made sense and was satisfied, was satisfying. That verse 28, when he says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found, he isn't talking about physically going out and finding a man or a woman. Um, the concept of find here, or fi finding out in this passage, is about comprehending, understanding. So he says, maybe there's one in a thousand men that I actually understand. It's not a complete mystery to me. Women don't understand at all. Perhaps if this was a woman, probably if this was a woman writing this, it would be the opposite. But the point is, who can understand this thing called mankind? Who can grasp it? As Paul will go on to say in, in Romans 7, I don't even understand myself. Why I do these things and don't do these things? Who? I can't even grasp myself. How am I supposed to understand somebody else? So much mystery. But there is something else here that the author has found out. And so verse 29 says, This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Schemes means something like plans, inventions, devices. In other words, God made man upright, good, righteous, but mankind was not content with this plan. 
Mankind was not content with what God had done, with, with what God had designed and ordained, with God himself. But mankind turned elsewhere and came up with their own plans for life. Rather than seeking God or trusting God in his will, we sought out many schemes, many ways to go about life. And this is at the heart of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is not just going against some moral code, hurting other people, breaking some laws. At its heart, sin is rebelling against God. It is trusting ourselves over trusting God. It is thinking we know best rather than God. It is preferring to rule our own lives than be ruled by God. Before we ever sin against one another, and we certainly do that, but before we ever do that, we sin against God. We don't believe that God's way and God's own character is good, but we know better. So we're going to break this apart and consider three aspects of sin that are highlighted here. I'll give you them here up front, and then we'll go through them. So the origins of sin, where does sin come from? The universality of sin and the satisfying, joyous, and freeing solution to sin that God gives us. First, the origins of sin. This passage is really helpful, especially in Ecclesiastes, uh, because it, gets, it goes right back to the beginning, gets to the root of the problem. Who is to blame for the problems in the world? Who is to blame for the frustration that we face in this world? Is God to blame? Did God just make us like this and so we can live our lives just bitter and angry at him all the time? Are others to blame? Is the sole source of our problems everyone else around us and so we just need to either be bitter against everyone else or just withdraw from anyone whenever they hurt us at all? Or perhaps there's no explanation and this world is just a cold and bitter place, just deal with it. No, there is a story that explains why the world is as it is. And it's summed up very briefly, though accurately, in verse 29 there. God made man upright. This is getting back to Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then it goes on to say, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was good. And so one thing we have to get clear right up front, is that God is good. God does what is good. God loves what is good. God calls us towards what is good. We can count on him to be completely good, not a mixture of good and evil, not just kind of good, but good through and through. And it's so important for that to be true in a world that is not good through and through. That there is something, there is someone that is fully good. And yet, the verse goes on there, they have sought out, we have sought out many schemes. So the root of the problem is mankind's rebellion against its creator God, is in our hearts. Genesis 3, we read, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So 
notice that part of the temptation that Adam and Eve feel and give into is this desire to be wise and knowledgeable and self-sufficient apart from God. They had everything they needed. But they wanted something else. We don't want to take God at his word. We don't want to live in faith and dependence on him. We want to figure out our own way, find our own plan and device for how to live this life. Ultimately, we want to be our own gods. This, this isn't a problem just in, with what we do. It's in our minds and thoughts. It's in our feelings, our desires and emotions, and it springs from our very hearts. We are sinners. Uh, Jesus, who is God and who is love and who is fully good, had no problem saying something like, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Uh, reading these lists in Scripture can be incredibly humbling and uh, overwhelming. And perhaps we feel that it only adds to the, the weightiness and the trouble we feel in this world. Right? There's good news to come. We'll get there. But on this journey, notice, on this journey for understanding and meaning and satisfaction... This is what the conclusion the author has come to thus far. God is good. God made man upright, but they have sought out many other plans and devices and schemes and ways to go about life. This is the ultimate root of of sin and of our frustration and toil and all of this in life. It's the ultimate reason why there is a book of Ecclesiastes that confesses all of this. Secondly, the universal nature of sin. Look at verse 20 again. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And this is a claim that you don't have to look far in Scripture to to find out. Jesus says no one is good except God alone, which I think Carly just read. No one is good except God alone. Jesus' disciple John wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the playing field is leveled. And what this means is that you cannot find a satisfying conclusion to life by comparing yourself with others and justifying yourself based on being better than everyone else. Or perhaps more commonly better than those people. But we will try, right? We will try our best to do that. We will try to build the platform of our lives, the foundation, the things that keeps us going on being at least better than those people, on our own righteousness, on our own feeling of justice and goodness and rightness, by assuring ourselves that we are not like those men and women. You might recall that Jesus says something exactly like that. Very clearly says it is exactly the men and women that think, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. 
that have it all wrong and miss out on the grace of God. So if we spend our days thinking, thank God that I'm not like those liberals. Thank God that I'm not like those Trump-supporting conservatives. Thank God I'm not like those pleasure-seeking, secular, godless people who don't ever go to church. Thank God I'm not, not like those people that are so religious and go to church all the time, are prude, and think they are so good. Thank God I'm not like them. Thank God that I am humble and righteous and better than them. That's how we all want to operate, religious or not. Like, this is a universal thing. Everyone is trying to justify themselves, and we use everyone else to compare and justify ourselves. And the news organizations and social media are more than happy to help you with this. They are actually in the business, actually making money, literally, in confirming your worst suspicions about everyone else. Helping you to justify yourself. And the result of all of this is that we end up proud and self-righteous, not thinking we have any real needs. We end up like the picture of the man in verse 21 and 22, where we hear somebody cursing us, and we want to go after them, failing to realize that we do the same thing. Or as Jesus puts it, we see all the specks of sin in other people's eyes that we want to help them fix or get mad at them for, but we fail to see that we have this plank sticking out of our own eyes that everyone else sees, but we are blind to. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I said there was good news coming. You might say, well, this sounds true enough. That may be true enough, but it's certainly not good news. Merely going through life, just blaming ourselves, doesn't seem very worthwhile. Even if it were true, who could live that way? And you're, you're right. We can't live that way. And so it's understandable that we would seek, we would go through life just trying to divert the blame, trying to blame everything else, trying to blame the world. As we discussed last week, it's totally understandable that we would try to live in these fantasy worlds. Like, when we're confronted with reality, it's too hard and too overwhelming, and so we construct these fantasy worlds that we live in, and all of us do it to some degree. But as I said at the beginning, trying to deal with the toil and frustration of life without ever acknowledging sin is not going to get us very far. It'll be like trying to deal with a headache brought up by sunlight or lack of sleep or some pain simply by taking Tylenol. It's going to give you some temporary relief, but it's not going to deal with the underlying problem. It's not going to actually fix anything. This is what it's like to try to deal with the problems of the world and the problems of our lives simply by blaming others and blaming the world around us. So perhaps it would seem that we have no good option before us. Either we can live in reality and embrace our sin and just be debilitated and depressed all the time. Or we can ignore it, but it doesn't really help anything. 
just gives us some temporary relief. What are we to do? Well, let me suggest that we must go deeper still. That sin is not the end of the story. That whatever guilt or shame we might feel today, a week ago, 10 years ago, is not the end of the story. Not for you, not for me, not for the world. And is not where God desires to leave us. So you might have noticed I read through those verses earlier, but I didn't finish them. It's important that we finish them. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is, as a means of turning away the the just anger God has towards sin by his blood to be received by faith. So let me suggest that the best way forward in light of the goodness and the grace of God and the loving sacrifice of Christ the very one who we have sinned against. The best way forward is running to him and laying all of our burdens on him. When Jesus says, come to me all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, perhaps we might think, well, yes, yes, but he doesn't mean burdens caused by our own sin. He's willing to take on our tiredness and frustration, but surely not our own sin, not the weight of our sin, Of course that's not right. He died to bear the burden of our sin and guilt so that we wouldn't have to. And as we come to Him, He, and trust in Him, He forgives us as we read here. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us, make us clean. The Bible gives us a picture of uh, white as snow, he, makes, he removes our shame and guilt and condemnation. He makes us right in right standing with God, having peace with God. He deals with our sin in a way that completely changes us and frees us and leads us to joy. In Jesus and in the faith that is in Him, we, our sin no longer stands against us. It no longer defines who we are. It cannot condemn us. We are a new person in Him. We are beloved of God, favored, chosen of God. To return to that parable where Jesus rejected the man who boasted in himself and his own righteousness. Thank God I am not like other men. What does Jesus say about the the tax collector? The humble and broken tax collector who who openly confesses his sin. says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, here's the point of the story. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. So God 
delights to draw near to and takes pleasure in sinners who knows they are sinners. Even those who are beat down and utterly broken by their sin and unworthiness. He invites and welcomes them to himself and to lay their burdens on him. And he doesn't desire to leave us broken down, but to lift us up and to comfort and strengthen us and to give us hope, confidence, strength, and joy. This is what is proclaimed and accomplished so loudly on the cross that God was not willing to leave us in our sin, but went to incredible and excruciating lengths to draw sinners like you and I towards himself. And so in your weariness and toil and frustration and dissatisfaction in life, consider the goodness and the grace and the justice-satisfying, sin-conquering, joy-inducing death of Jesus. And come to Him just as you are, hiding nothing, no pretenses, no excuses. Just throw yourself on Him again and again. And He will be enough. He will be your joy and your peace Ecclesiastes does not end right here. The Bible does not end right here with this pronouncement or in Genesis 3, but it goes on and from beginning to end, God has this plan to draw sinners like you and I to himself and to live forever in joyful fellowship with us. To extend to us even now his joy. Let's pray.